Well, brothers and sisters, we are continuing in our look at the book of Ruth. And so uh, if you were not here last week or if you've just forgotten, uh, I thought I would tell you just briefly about what happened in the first chapter so that you don't feel like you're too far behind. The first chapter, we were introduced to four characters. They were Elimelech, uh, Naomi, Malon, and Chilion. And they were Israelites. And so there was a famine in the land. So uh, they were from Bethlehem, Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. And they were breadless in the house of bread, right? And so, uh, so they decided to go to Moab, right? To go to a country that, quite frankly, the Israelites and the Moabites did not have great relationships, but they were fleeing to try to find some food. And so they went there. And unfortunately, the father of the household, Elimelech, uh, ended up dying. And then uh, uh, Malon and Chilion got married to two Moabite women, uh, to Orpah and to Ruth. Uh, and then those two sons, they died. Uh, And so very quickly, we are ushered into the reality of that time and place, which is a very vulnerable time, where death seemed to be quite prevalent, uh, and where um, now you have three widows. And as we said, in that time and place, to be a widow uh, was a remarkably vulnerable place to be in, uh, not knowing where your food, not knowing where you would stay. And so at some point, uh, Naomi, the mother-in-law, said, well, I've heard that there is food again back in Bethlehem. And so they began to go. And at some point on their journey, she changed her mind and thought that Naomi, or excuse me, that Orpah and Ruth should go back home, go back to Moab. So she encouraged them to do so. Uh, Finally, Orpah relented and said, okay, I'll go back, but not Ruth, right? Maybe you remember what Ruth said. We see it up here in Ruth 1.16. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And so Naomi said, fine, come along. So we went along. Actually, what we're told is that she said nothing. Uh, And so they walked on and they got to Bethlehem and they met the women, some women from from Bethlehem who came out and said, is this Naomi? And maybe you recall what Naomi said. Naomi said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me bitter. For I went away full. I've come away empty or I've come back home empty, and the Lord has basically turned his back on me. Remembering, of course, that she said all of these things, that I have nothing with Ruth right next to her. It's not exactly a great pick-me-up, this story, in the first chapter. It's quite dismal. But as we said, there is one glimpse of hope that comes at the very end of the first chapter, which the narrator then says, they came at the beginning of the harvest. In other words, it may just be the times are looking up. Maybe there is still hope. And that takes us to chapter 2. Now Naomi had a kinsman on her husband's side, a prominent rich man of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose sight I may find favor. She said to her, go, my daughter. So she went. She came and gleaned in the field behind the reapers. As it happened, she came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Just then Boaz came from Bethlehem. He said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. They answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, to whom does this young woman belong? 
The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the Moabite who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the reapers. So she came and she has been on her feet from early this morning until now without resting even for a moment. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Keep your eyes on the field that is being reaped and follow behind them. I have ordered the young men not to bother you. If you get thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Then she fell prostrate with her face to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me when I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord reward you for your deeds and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, May I continue to find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though I am not one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some of this bread and dip your morsel in the sour wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he heaped up for her some parched grain. She ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she got up to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, Let her glean even among the standing sheaves and do not reproach her. You must also pull out some handfuls for her from the bundles and leave them for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. She picked it up and came into the town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gleaned. Then she took out and gave her what was left over after she herself had been satisfied. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a relative of ours, one of our nearest kin. Then Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, Stay close by my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is better, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, otherwise you might be bothered in another field. So she stayed close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we gather this morning in the presence of sisters and brothers in Christ to listen to, to hear of a story that happened long ago in a place very different than our own. And yet the same spirit who spoke to the narrator of this story, who told the story, and then the one who wrote it down is the same spirit that is with us even today. So we pray that this spirit would open up our eyes, ears, and hearts to you. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So one of the things that you know, I'm sure, about a good storyteller is that a good storyteller always knows how to keep the audience captured and captivated so that they stay engaged with the story. Our 
narrator really does a pretty remarkable job of this, um, oftentimes because of the way that he uses phrases that are a bit ambiguous and make you kind of wonder what is going to happen next. Now again, much of that is oftentimes forgotten in an audience like this because we don't quite understand the Hebrew or it's such a different time, right? And so it's always important for us to be mindful of that. Uh, uh, One of the ways that we see this here at the beginning is that the narrator tells us, this is kind of like an aside in the first verse, and he's like, well, you should know that there's a man named Boaz who is a relative of Elimelech. Now, what's interesting, of course, is that if you hear that, and they would have heard this, they would have been like, oh, wow, because family takes care of family, especially then. And so, well, we didn't know there was a family member, and so maybe there's great hope, Right? However, the, the word that's used in Hebrew, the word that we uh, 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 translate as kinsman, is, is, is somewhat of an ambiguous word. It's a, it's a word that means, well, he's a relative, but we don't know how close, right? It's kind of like when you have a friend or somebody, and they're like, oh, well, you know, I'm related to this great celebrity. And you're like, oh, really? Like how? Like, well, they're like a 47th cousin 300 times removed. And you're like... All right, that's not really being related, right? And so it's this ambiguous phrase of a kinsman, of of a relative, and you think, well, they could help, but they might not help. We don't really know for sure. So it's very kind of ambiguous, but it keeps us excited, right? And so so this is the way the narrator begins to tell this story. And then he goes on and says, well, you remember Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite, right? And we're going to hear this again and again. And it's important for us to be mindful of this because this is not just a kind of a nice fact. It's important to know that Ruth is a Moabite, right? And, 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 the narrator doesn't continue to repeat that because he thinks that we're stupid. I mean, he might, but that's not why. He keeps saying it because he wants us to know that this is important. So there's Ruth the Moabite. You can almost picture this, if you will. Picture Ruth and Naomi, and they're there. And you kind of get a sense that they're just kind of, they're there. And obviously, Naomi is still very sad, understandably so. And so it's just kind of like, oh. And finally, Ruth is like, you know what? I'm not going to sit around here anymore. We're going to die. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to glean the fields, right? I'm going to get us some harvest. We aren't going out like this. And you see Naomi, right? How does Naomi respond? Go, my daughter. That's all she says. It's this very simple little phrase. You know this, right? When you're with someone and they're depressed, right? They don't have any energy behind this. They're just like, do what you want. All is hopeless, right? And so Ruth says, okay, well, great, thanks. That's all I needed, mom. And so she heads out, right? And then did you catch the phrase here that says, okay, so as it happened, she ends up at the field of the guy, Boaz, I was just telling you about. Now, whenever they say this, you should realize that the narrator's kind of giving us a big wink, as it happened, right? And so again, there's this sense of, wait a second, is something happening here that's unique? What's going on? And so there she is, and she's, she's working, it seems, and working well, clearly, working hard. And Boaz, about this time, he ends up, and he says, hey, who is this young woman? Now, it doesn't just say young woman. Again, to, to use the Hebrew, there's a specific word used here, which is na'ar, which means not just young woman, but young marriageable woman, right? And so as the audience, you're thinking, well, right? This is interesting, right? And so who is this marriageable woman, right? And so, so the worker says, well, you know, she's Ruth the Moabite who comes from Moab. 
Again, this should stand out, right? I mean, like, oh, so wait, so Moabites come from Moab? Oh, right? Again, this is something that's important for the narrator keeps saying, this is a foreigner. This is not an insider. This is an outsider. And so, uh, and, and so Boaz says, okay. So then Boaz comes up and Boaz is like, you know, uh, just keep doing this. Keep gleaning. Keep staying. And then he says, you know what? I've even told my workers, my, the men, not to bother you. Which is this great kind of reminder again of the vulnerability that Ruth had put and the vulnerable position that Ruth, the outsider, Ruth who was from Moab, but meant she was a... A Moabite, that's exactly right. You guys are getting this, that, that, that she was in, right? I mean, that you had to tell them, don't bother her. And what does she says? She's overcome. She says, well, why, why would you treat me like this? I am a foreigner. Now, again, what's kind of interesting is in the way that the Hebrew goes, a way that you can really kind of translate this is, why do you recognize me who is unrecognizable? Right? Who are you to notice me who is someone who is unnoticed? Right? It's this powerful phrase. And so then Boaz says to her, well, I know what you have done. I know how you have left your mother and your father and your own country in order to come to this foreign country, to these people you did not know. Finally, someone notices what Ruth has done. Ruth is overjoyed. Boaz throws out a prayer over her and then Ruth continues to work. She works hard. In fact, we're told that she works so hard that she ends up with an ephah of barley. Now, in my research on this, I have heard that an ephah can be enough to feed two people five days and, and others say five weeks which means that nobody has any idea how much an ephah is. <laughs> but just say it with confidence, right? Just say, I don't know how much lettuce you need, but I got about an ephah of it. I hope that that's good, right? And so, so there's just, you know, just say it with confidence. So, so an ephah, right, and that's what it is. But what we do know for sure is, while we don't know how much it is, we know that it is above average. Because when she gets home, Right, Naomi is overwhelmed. Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. For the first time, right, for the first time, Naomi seems to have renewed life. This is not, go daughter. This is, wow, where have you been? And so she says, and so Naomi says, or Ruth says, well, I was at, uh, I was at this guy named Boaz's place. Oh, Boaz! He's one of our nearest kin. To which Ruth says, well, that would have been helpful to have known this morning. <laughs> right? Why would you not tell me that earlier? I could have ended up anywhere. Right? Well, she doesn't actually say that, but that's what she's feeling, it seems to me. So then Naomi gives the helpful note. Oh, well, you should keep going to that same field. Duh. Okay. Thanks, Naomi. What would I do without you, right? And so she does. She continues to go back to this field. Now, now it's clear again, and you even see with Naomi, she says, you know, bless me. The Lord bless this person. There's a sense that, as you recall from the previous chapter, where the Lord is just against me, but now she's speaking blessings from the Lord. There's clearly a shift, a shift of mood. 
But interestingly enough, this almost mimics the first chapter, but in the reverse. Meaning that the first chapter was pretty depressing, and then there was a glimpse of hope. This is pretty uplifting, but then there's also a sense of, well, wait, because the chapter says that the harvest, she worked there until the end of the harvest, which means that the harvest was ending. And so whilst they would have food now, would they continue to have food in the future? This is really, I, I think, a, a great chapter, perhaps my favorite chapter of the four. I mean, there's not that many, so, but... But one of the things I love about not just this chapter, but the whole book, is I love the way that it seems to reflect our own lives. One of the things, as we said last week, is, is, that, is that there's a sense that God is, is oftentimes in the background. Someone has said that God oftentimes works in the shadows of the story. And it seems to me that that's oftentimes where God works in our own lives as well. Remember Naomi, as she stands there in Bethlehem, and when she's welcomed and says, call me bitter, right? She says, I am empty. Again, as I've already said, and there's Ruth right there. And you're thinking, well, wait, God's working through this woman. And eventually your redemption, your hope is going to come through this woman. But she seems to be unable to see how God is at work right there in the foreground. She doesn't even see God at all. And then as we just said, here in this story, you see the as it happens. Now, frequently in Scripture, in the Old Testament, whenever it says as it happens, it usually is then connected explicitly to something that God has done. But not here in Ruth. Here in Ruth, the narrator does not give us that. The narrator just says, oh, no, just as it happens. In other words, it's still kind of ambiguous. We don't know for sure, which again, I think is so often how much of us have, we oftentimes, we live our lives, we wonder where God is. Philip Yancey, uh, one of my favorite authors, he says this, he says that faith, he says faith is trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. So that for Naomi, right, as we will begin to see later on, she cannot see things right now. She cannot see God at work. It doesn't mean that he's not. But at some point, she will be able to look back in reverse and to see the hand of God. One of the stories as I, that I always think about when it comes to this is my own, uh, is my own life um, uh, when, I, um, when I graduated, after I graduated from seminary, I, was, I went off, um, um, uh, I had, was in Scotland. Anyway, so I came back, and I didn't have a job. I needed a job, right? I mean, I've gone through all this schooling, way too much schooling, spent all this money, and I, and I still, I, I needed a job, and I didn't know where the job was going to come, right? And I've talked to, I've described before about one of the interviews I had at the church outside Philadelphia, and, and it was this most awkward lunch ever, right, where we all ate lunch together with the, with the pastor nominating committee, and they all talked to each other, and nobody talked to me, and, and, and yet they still offered me the job, which is, which is super weird, right? And so, uh, uh, and so I said no, because these people, it was not going to be a good fit. And so, um, um, and so I said no to that, but then I kept, you know, but then I kept getting rejection, rejection and I was like, man, what, what's happening? And so I was out of money, right? And so I went to Kansas City, and because I, I, I have family there, so I began to mooch off of them, which was wonderful. And so it was all fine, but I was struggling, right? Because I was like, man, I'm, am I ever, is, is this ever going to happen, right? And, 
And then I decided after having been there several weeks, I said, you know what, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go visit my cousin. Now, this wasn't a super close cousin. It wasn't a, a 300th cousin 400 times removed, but it was a second cousin. I knew him a little bit, but I knew he was a pastor. And I said, well, let me just go visit him. And I've been here a lot of Sundays and I haven't visited him. So I went and I went to this place called Rainbow Avenue uh, Church of the Nazarene. This was on February 20th of 2005. And I went and I was there and I looked up in about eight rows ahead ahead of me on the left-hand side, there was a beautiful woman. And I thought to myself, I wonder what her friends look like on either side, right? Because this is what guys do sometimes, right? You're like, oh, wow. And, and, and what else? And then, right, then after service, she accosted me basically in the, in the gathering space. She will admit this is true. <laughs> she will lie in the sanctuary. That is not a good sign. But she came up to me and she just started talking to me. And then she's like, hey, you want, you know what? You know what? We have Sunday school right after this. You might want to go to the Sunday school. And I was like, you know I do, girl. And so <laughs> I, we went there, right? And then she made sure to, that I knew that there was going to be lunch afterwards, that a bunch of people were getting together. And so we went out for lunch. And, and this, of course, is Megan, right? And so, uh, I, and, so, and so in reverse, as I look back, I think February 20 of 2005, God had worked all of these things. I hadn't seen God. I didn't know where God was, but God made sure that I didn't have a job. God made sure that I was mooching off my family. God made sure that for some random day, I would just show up at this little, quite small church. And who knew that all of a sudden, that then I would meet the person who would change my life. God had been at work in that background, right? God had been at work. And so now when I go through times when I am wondering, God, where are you? Are you even here? That's one of the dates that I always look back to. One of the times that I always look back to to say, that's right. I thought that God was gone then. I thought that God had left then. God was still there. So we need to be reminded as we read these stories of the fact that God is still at work, even when we cannot see him. Now here's Another important aspect, which is that oftentimes when God is at work in the foreground, it is through the work of God's people. See, sometimes, usually, perhaps, we think that the way God works is only through the supernatural and miraculous. And what we miss out on are those times when God is actually using God's people in remarkable ways, but we may not see it. There's this great line. I kind of skipped over it in the summary because I wanted to bring it up now, which is in verses 12 and 13. Uh, Boaz does this prayer where he says, Ruth, you've done such wonderful things. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord protect you. May the Lord give you shelter underneath his wing. It's all wonderful. It's a beautiful prayer. It's the right prayer. And then Ruth says this. Well, May I continue to find favor in your sight. In other words, as it's been suggested, what Ruth is saying, very subtle, because she would have had to have been subtle in this time and place, is it's a beautiful prayer. Why don't you answer that prayer? See, what she knew was that Boaz had the means to be able to answer the prayer that he gave to God. 
He had the financial means. He had his own farm. He had workers. It meant he had the capability. And while it is good and right for him to have prayed, this is not an either or. It is a both and. You see, sometimes we make the will of God complex so that we don't have to answer what we know God is telling us to do. So, you see that he's got this money that the Lord has blessed him and that clearly he can help her. And you see Ruth in a gentle way making this remarkable suggestion, right? I love it. It's this famous quote that you guys have probably heard about, Frederick Beekner, where he says, you know, if you're, as you're discerning the will, it's, it's a place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. So in those places where you have a deep gladness, where the Lord has blessed you, where the Lord has gifted you, where the Lord has skilled you, whether it's by the fact that you have wealth, whether it's by the fact that you're a great teacher or you're really good at math or you're really good at English or you're really good at cleaning, whatever it may be. Discern those places where it is that the world has a great need, where your neighborhood has a great need, where your workplace has a great need, and realize that as you pray for the will of the Lord, that you may also be asking, where can I join you, God, in what it is that you're doing in order to help answer this prayer? And so Ruth, in this kind, beautiful suggestion, she is saying, you may just be the person that you are praying about right now. But now here's what's important to see in this story, which is not just that Boaz is the worker and is the one in whom God is going to use at some point. Spoiler alert. It is that Ruth is also an amazing blessing and the worker here of God for Naomi. And this is important, and I want you to hear this. It's important because what our storyteller is reminding us again is that the person who is a blessing to the Israelite Naomi is Ruth. And Ruth is from? And she is then a? And that is not just neither here nor there. That is absolutely critical because to the initial hearers much like we hear when it comes to the good like they would have heard with the good Samaritan with the story of Samaria this means there is an outsider one who is unrecognizable one who is a foreigner in our midst and it is this one who is teaching the Israelite something about God and about her faith You see, what we need to understand is that our faith and our understanding of God, it comes very much out of the way in which we were raised, very much out of our own context, very much out of the way that we look, all of those things. And that is fine. There is no other way for that to happen. But what we also need to be cognizant of is the fact that there are those who are on the outside, those who are the foreigners in our midst, those who are the Moabites, who very well may have something to teach us about God and about our own faith. I was thinking about that, about my trip uh, to Uganda. I mean, it's obligatory that I bring up Uganda at least two to three times after having been there. And so um, um, it, was, it, was one, it was a remarkable trip. But one of the most remarkable times 
was when I was, um, right after I had lunch at one of the houses. So the orphanage has, a lot of houses have maybe between 10 and 14 kids in each house. And then each house has a, has a, has a house mom. Uh, and so I, I sat there and I had lunch with the kids and with the house mom. And the kids kind of were off running around as kids do. And, uh, and so it was just me and the house mom and we're talking. And, and she just began to kind of explain to me or describe to me her own journey of life. And as you might expect, I mean, it was a journey that had uh, some blessings, but also a lot of struggles. She was very honest about the struggles, very honest about the struggles, about the sacrifices, and about the suffering that she had endured. Now, she wasn't doing this uh, saying, woe is me. She was just kind of bringing up the suffering and the ways in which that constant suffering and that constant vulnerability had shaped her faith, had shaped her understanding of God. And then, and this is the part that kind of haunts me, she, she, she said all of that, and then she said, because you, you know, I mean, that's what suffering does. We all know this. And what I didn't know how to kind of explain was that, well, I mean, while we have bits and pieces of suffering, to be sure, that we do not want to make light of, we have not, the vast majority of us, uh, although some of us, but not the majority of us, lived from birth until where we are now as adults with constant suffering and vulnerability. And what I realized is that this had shaped her faith in a very different way. It had shaped her understanding of God in a very different way that I could not, in my own setting, completely understand. And I don't say this as a way to glorify suffering or even as a way to say that she was really glad about all the suffering she had done. But I do say it as a way of saying so often when it comes to pain, we do everything we can. We distract ourselves. We entertain ourselves. We drink ourselves. We do all of these things to try to avoid it. And maybe one of the lessons I learned in this or the things that was re-enhanced was maybe in a sense of seeing the suffering or this pain, what does it help to shape? How does it shape me? How does it make me look more like God? What does it teach me? And this conversation with this outsider from my perspective, someone who came from a very different perspective, a very different context, it challenged and encouraged my faith. And when it is easier at times for us to be fearful of the outsider, perhaps we can also ask the question, what might this person teach me about God? There's one last thing that I want to bring up about this story that, I, again, this is kind of like what I said last week, where sometimes things are easy, more easily felt than they are explained. And it goes back to this scene where Boaz is telling Naomi, or telling Ruth, there's too many names, is telling Ruth that he noticed what she had done when he realized the sacrifices that she had made. It reminded me a bit of, a, 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 of the summer of 2000 um, um, when I was going up to, when I went up to Alaska for a summer. I've talked about this a little bit, but the reason I was going up there is because my cousin, uh, um, he was, um, he was uh, his girlfriend was up there in Fairbanks, Alaska, so he, was, he really wanted to go up there for the summer and to be close to her, and so he wasn't going to go alone. He said, well, you just go. You're going to go off to seminary anyways. You can quit your job early, and we can just make this trek. And I, I, was, I was excited, but I was also a little sad to leave because I had some good friends there, and I said, okay, we'll just we'll do this. So we did it. We did this five-day. Now, my cousin had said, hey, don't worry. I got great jobs lined up for us. We're going to make a lot of money. And about a day into it, literally a day to a day and a half into it, he got off the phone uh, with his girlfriend. He's like, well, we don't really have those jobs. And I was like, well, that's great. Thanks. So, so, but we did it anyways. We kept going and we got up there. We got to Fairbanks. Now, I don't know if anybody here, is anybody here from Fairbanks? Are you from Fairbanks? 
Okay, you went there. Good, I can still say it then. Which is that Fairbanks, it ain't that great of a place. Alaska's cool. Anchorage is cool. I mean, there's a lot of cool things. But Fairbanks is just kind of like, eh, you know. I mean, most people avoid it, right? And so, uh, so, so I got there. I had no job. Then I finally got a job. Uh, but it was just waiting tables. And, and, and I started like, you know, I was, um, uh, this is neither here nor there. But I was writing down, you know, exactly how many tips I was making. The other waiters weren't. And I got in trouble for it because they were afraid we were going to get in trouble with the IRS. And so I offered to quit. And basically all the other waiters and waitresses hated me. And so, uh, uh, so it wasn't that great. And I didn't know anybody. And it was really just kind of a nightmare. And the thing was, on top of all that, the thing was, my cousin was always with his. You guys have been there, right? And I'm like, I, you know, so I had nothing and nobody. And he was never around. This happened for weeks. And finally, I had had it. And I think, I forget the exact details, but I think he was supposed to do something with me. And he was like, you know, Jerry, I think I'm just going to hang out with my girlfriend. And I lost it. And I just went off. I mean, I just told him every single sacrifice that I had made for me to be here. And all he ever wanted to do was to be with this girlfriend. And she wasn't the one who had gotten him to this place. And I was the one who came with him without me. He wouldn't even be there. I get mad even today. And so (laughs) I said all of those things, right? And I mean, it felt so good. I don't know if you've had one of those moments, but it was glorious. And to his credit, right, he was like, well, he didn't say it immediately. I think I left uh, off in a storm. You know, it was really kind of dramatic. And then I came back. And I was like, I don't have my keys. So, um, <laughs> and he, to his credit, and he acknowledged it, right? I mean, and we've, we've made up since then. He was the best man at my wedding. He's a great, great, great guy. But, but it felt so good to be able to say that, right? And even though he didn't like hang out with me all the time after that, just the simple fact of him saying, look, I know that you made a sacrifice. I get it. So, That is just, that pales very much in comparison. But it was a story I thought about when it comes to this story about Ruth. Because there again, there is this woman, as Boaz describes, who has left everything. Everything. And remember again, this is not family. They're not going to Facebook message each other. They're not going to call each other. They're not going to WhatsApp each other. They're not going to do any of those things. She will never see her family again. She did all those things and Boaz says, I know the sacrifice that you have made. Don't you, I almost imagine Ruth just wanting to weep at the fact that after all that she had done, living through the embarrassment of her mother-in-law saying, I have nothing, of finally being acknowledged that you have been recognized, that your sacrifice has been seen. And when I thought about that this week, I thought, you know what? My guess is that most of us forget how much hope, how much encouragement we can give to people simply by saying, we notice the sacrifice that you have made and we want you to know that we have seen it and that we are thankful for it. And I said, you know what I want to do? I want to encourage our people this week to do this one simple. What Boaz said was very succinct. All it took was like two or three sentences. And yet you can imagine that for the rest of that day, Ruth is thinking, all is not lost. And so then I said to myself, well, you know what? I'm going to tell them to do this. And they're going to be like, oh, that's a great idea. And then not do it. 
So that's why I gave you this. Does anyone have this postcard right here? Sally Bias made this for us. Did I call this the no excuse postcard? Now look, it has, it even has a place that says place stamp here. If you are like, well, I would do it, but I just don't have the money for the stamp. Talk to Scott Shelton. He will pay for that stamp for you. But all you have to do, I thank my God every time I remember, all you have to do, look, we don't even give you that much space. Just three sentences, two sentences, just to let them know that the sacrifice they make has been noticed. I don't care who you do it to. Perhaps, perhaps it is the foreigner in our midst. Perhaps it is the one who oftentimes they do the work that most of us do not do. Maybe it's the cleaner at your workplace. Maybe it's the person who mows your lawn or someone else's lawn. And maybe by simply saying, I want you to know, I notice what you do for not that much money and I want to say thank you. Maybe it's a sibling that you have who is taking care of your elderly mother or father. That is a lot of work, oftentimes work that is not given thanks for. Maybe you just write a quick little note and you say, hey, I just want to thank you, brother. Thank you, sister, for the way that you're caring for our mom or our dad. Maybe it's just to a mother or a father. It doesn't matter, but come up with somebody. I promise you there is someone in your life who is sacrificing and maybe thinks that nobody even notices. And you have an opportunity today. You have an opportunity to give them hope where they might be feeling hopeless. You see, one of the key themes throughout the book of Ruth is this message of hope. Whether it's that you don't know if God is really there And God seems far away and Ruth reminds us, oh, even when God seems like he's in the shadows, he is at work. There is still hope. Whether it's the fact that you bless somebody else by saying, I think that you as an outsider have something to teach me about God. That is a way to give hope. Whether it's that by you saying, I am going to be an instrument and I am going to pray, but I am also going to say, in what ways, Lord, can I give hope? Maybe it's simply writing a note, as I pray that you will do, just to say, you are recognized, you are noticed. Thank you for what you do. Whatever it may be, make no mistake about it. All of us have opportunities to be people through whom God works by being a people who give hope. May that be our prayer. Amen. Let us pray. God, we pray that you would be with us on this day, that you would be with all of us as we seek to love you and to be vessels of your hope. And it is in your name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, sisters,